beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. I didn't finish this book until last night. Okay. And I, when I closed the book, I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) This was a real ride. And I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Welcome to another revisiting episode where we revisit a pop culture phenomenon from the past. This is the second revisiting episode. You can go back and listen to episode six, where we took a look at the most formative novels of childhood favorite author, Judy Bloom. On this show, we are also revisiting the written word, but it's quite different. This is a deep dive on the juggernaut novel that most of us read inappropriately young, Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. My guest and actually the person who pitched this as a revisit topic for the show, is one of my oldest and dearest friends, Meg Teets. Meg is the creator and host of the Sorta Awesome podcast, where I was a co-host for several years. Sorta Awesome is a weekly woman's podcast focused on all of the awesome ways to be smart, strong, and social. Meg is also the creator of the Sorta Awesome Hangout on Facebook, one of my personal favorite little corners of the internet. 
The Sorta Awesome Hangout is a community of over 5,000 women committed to a culture of growth, kindness, and support. You can find out more about Meg and the Sorta Awesome Podcast and the Sorta Awesome Hangout at SortaAwesomeShow.com. You can also follow Meg on Instagram at SortaAwesomeMeg. So Meg and I have been friends since high school, which by that time, we'd already read this book, Flowers in the Attic, which is slightly terrifying to me, but we both remembered it as being a scandalous eye-opener. And when I posted about it on social media, it was immediately clear that a ton of you had also read it when we were all basically children. Even though it is a book about children, believe me when I say that this is not a book for children. Flowers in the Attic was published in 1979 by Simon & Schuster by author V.C. Andrews, Virginia C. Andrews, V.C., that is a woman. She did pass away, sadly, in 1986. The book became and is seen now by people of a certain age as kind of a cult classic. There were sequels to the original book. It has been adapted into a movie multiple times, also into a play, The most recent movie version was for Lifetime in 2014, and it starred Heather Graham as Corinne, the mom, and Ellen Burstyn as the grandmother. So I'm going to give you a little plot summary here, even though I hate plot summary, but I want to refresh your memory if this is something that is locked away long ago in the attic of your mind, or if you haven't read the book, but you're still listening, God bless you. The story starts in 1957 in Pennsylvania with an outwardly normal-looking family. There was a mom named Corinne, a dad named Christopher. They have four children, Kathy and Chris, who are preteens, and then toddler boy-girl twins named Corey and Carrie. In the opening pages of the book, the dad is killed in a car accident, and the mom, Corinne, is left broke, and she has no choice, apparently, But to go back to her wealthy parents and their home, people that she hasn't seen since she ran away from with Christopher at some unknown time in the past. Her ailing father has made it clear that she is not ever to return home, ever, which we find out later is because Corinne married Christopher and they were uncle and niece. That's why the ailing father has a grudge. But Corinne's mother, who is equally cruel, but she's somehow willing to let Corinne come home with the kids as long as the children stay hidden up in the attic. So the rest of the book is the children living in that attic for three years. Drama ensues. Most notably, Chris and Kathy, the older two kids, they go through puberty. And with the lack of any outside influence, they're hormonal urges work themselves out on one another. The incestuous relationship between Chris and Kathy, who they are only teenagers, is really the main scandal of this novel and is what most people remember and make jokes about in reference to Flowers in the Attic. There are other plot points, of course. There's the mystery of the sick grandfather, the ultra-cruel grandmother, the way the children's mother, Corinne, who she does not have to hide in the attic, by the way. She just lives in the main house while her kids suffer upstairs. We see her go through quite a transformation. But the main thing people remember about this book is the emerging sexuality of Chris and Kathy in their time of confinement. 
This is where Meg and I started our reread and subsequent conversation about the 1979 cult classic novel, Flowers in the Attic. If you agree or disagree with our analysis here and you need to tell us, you can always find and tag the show on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. I hope you enjoy our talk. Tell me your original relationship to this book because you are the one who pitched this to me as a revisit. I am responsible for this conversation. I go back and forth on if I regret that. (laughs) Are you embarrassed that I outed you that I just like said? No, I'm not embarrassed. Actually, you know what? The more as I was reading and had all these thoughts and questions come to the surface, I was like, I'm so glad that we're revisiting this. I think a lot of women in our generation need to revisit this. What was going on in this book? But so context, history, walk down memory lane. I first read this book in seventh grade. I must have read it several times because when I was rereading it, it felt so familiar to me. Like when you go back to your childhood home, like you kind of like remember things about your home. But if you ever go physically back to it, you're just like automatically, like your subconscious kind of takes over Mm -hmm. and you know where everything is. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt rereading this. So much deja vu certain words and phrases, not just the scenes, but the actual language of the book just came back to me. I was right back there in seventh grade reading it again. I was trying to remember, did I check this out from the library or did a friend pass me a copy of it? I cannot remember, but I do remember that it was like a paperback version. It was the sort of classic cover that has a picture of a mansion, like a kind of scary looking mansion with the face of a young girl sort of superimposed over an attic window. I'm sure that's meant to be Kathy, our protagonist. It was probably the first big adult-ish paperback I'd ever read. Were you scandalized by it or did you think it was sexy or did you think it, what was your emotional thought in the seventh grade? I think I was scandalized by it. I had not read anything. I mean, you were reading Stephen King in third grade, so I can only imagine that you were not scandalized (laughs) by Flowers in the Attic. Well, well, I'll say how I felt about it in a second, but go ahead. Okay. So this was probably the most provocative, the most titillating thing I'd ever read. I think I had enough sense of what was happening. I mean, I was a seventh grader. I wasn't a child, child, but I think I had enough sense to like not let my parents see it. But my parents were not, they were real free range when it came to parenting, when it came to especially our reading choices. My parents never asked what we were reading. They didn't seem to really be concerned about it ever. So I don't know. But I think that the content made me feel like, oh, I probably shouldn't show this book to my parents or let them see me reading it, even though they were not, you know, over my shoulder kind of snoopy, like, what are you reading kind of parents. Now, you have a brother. We both have brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a brother aspect. Yeah, yeah. That's that, all. That's the end of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many thoughts, but let's, let's, I have so many thoughts on what the appeal was for people our age when we were reading this, and that kind of ties into it. So I'm going to, let's put a pin in that and revisit. You tell about your first experience with it. I don't have like the deja vu feelings 
about it that you did when you reread it. I definitely read it back then, and I think I read a few more of V.C. Andrews' books. The one that actually stands out to me more is My Sweet Audrina, which was a standalone book. It was not one of these Dollenganger books. But I have to say something. I've talked so much about how often I was reading Stephen King when I was young and reading all these dark books. Mm -hmm. This is a much darker turn than like Christopher Pike or some of those other... Right. You know. Well, like the Goosebumps series were popular around this time too. Obviously, Flowers in the Attic is way darker and heavier. Uh It was actually not... I was reading about it this morning and it was actually not written as a young adult book. It was written as an adult book, but then the the fan base that... (laughs) took to it. It's now been marketed and is even shelved in the library under young adult. But it's, you know, it has a lot darker themes than some of the other things I was reading besides Stephen King. And here's the confession about reading all those books. I didn't understand them. Mm, Right, right, right. Like at all. I read them. I was obviously attracted to some kind of energy around them. Like there was something appealing about them that you know, it being scary. Stephen King can craft an amazing sentence. So, you know, maybe I just liked a better quality of writer than what's generally aimed for young people. But actual events or plot points or themes, little Laura did not get it. (laughs) You know, what's interesting about that. I think that, you know, just looking at the actual, the, the sexual dynamic and component to this book, I didn't maybe pick up on all of it as a seventh grader. I will say I did the only book in the Dollenganger series that I read besides Flowers in the Attic is the next one, which I think is called Petals on the Wind. Mm-hmm. And it gets a lot more explicit in terms of sex scenes. And I remember reading it at the time and really truly not I mean, I kind of understood. I mean, I knew what sex was, but the the scene as it played out, there was a lot of things that were said and done that I did not understand. And then later when I was older, <laughs> kind of like, I don't know, it just came to the surface in my memory. And I was like, oh, now I understand <laughs> what was happening. I think this should maybe even give us some hope, if you will, because I also really loved the movie Grease. I thought it was just like a fun, you know, silly, campy musical. And I remember my mom, and my parents also did not censor anything I read or saw, clearly. And I remember one time my mom even almost made a joke about me liking Grease. Like, (laughs) I don't really even remember what she said, but you know, she might have sort of said like, this this movie, this musical is a little bit naughty or something. Yes, yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even know what she meant. I truly did not know what she meant. Yes, yes. Probably Mm -hmm. until I was like in my 20s. And then I was like, that's what Grease is about? (laughs) Yeah. I just thought it was goody two-shoes gets high Uh heels. Like, I... (laughs) There's a lot, a lot, a lot of subtext there. And I can remember... Too, watching as a, as a kid, and I think I did tell, I watched it at a friend's house. I think I did tell my parents that we watched it, and they were not like shocked or horrified, but they were a little taken aback, like, well, that's not really something kids should be watching. And I was, I was the same reaction of just like, 
why it's so fun it's lots of singing and dancing and john travolta is very cool and totally that's why i said pick up on i that's why i said i feel like it should almost give us hope for our own children in a way that if they inadvertently stumble upon some kind of something that you wouldn't choose for them they don't always get it like they don't even know it truly goes over your head you don't know what you don't know Right. So like a lot of times you're just – and I I think we forget as an adult that when you are a child, it's totally normal and like almost a default to be like, I don't understand that. And like move on. Like your brain almost is like, I understand that I don't understand that. There's so many things in the world that I don't understand that it doesn't stand out as, oh, this is one I should try and figure out the meaning to. Mm -hmm. I really think when you're younger, your brain is so used to not – understanding the conversations that's happening around you or the jokes or like you don't get it and so you don't give that much thought to it whereas like as adults you think oh my gosh I can't believe my kid heard that or saw that and you know yes they don't get it always mostly I didn't I think there's a lot of panic in parenting in our culture today like in our generation you and I our peers I think there's a lot of panic about our kids losing their innocence and I just don't understand that because there's this idea that knowledge, like when you have like, quote unquote, the sex talk with your kids, that you're somehow taking their innocence away from them. And I just don't, I have never seen it that way. I think that, and certainly people are welcome to disagree with me, but I think that it's really kind of empowering. And it's like something that you can really gift to your kids is an age appropriate introduction to that. But yeah, I do think that we do have a little bit of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe that he saw this or whatever. And yeah, a lot of it doesn't land. Well, there is some strange and twisted women empowerment themes in Flowers in the Attic. Okay. Say more about that. <laughs> that I definitely didn't get when I read it when I was young. I say twisted because I don't think that they're by any means something to aspire to or emulate or anything. But the women are strong characters and in some ways they're way more layered than any of the men or boys. Oh, yes. Yes, that's so true. Kathy, Corinne, Grandma, even little twin Carrie has more of a personality than little twin Corey. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very much a women-centric book, girl and woman-centric book. Absolutely it is. And that's very interesting. So V.C. Andrews, um, this is one of the few things published under her name that she actually wrote. I say few. I mean, she wrote the entire um, Dollinganger series, but she died in 1986 and her estate hired a man named Andrew Niederman to complete the the manuscripts that she hadn't finished. And then he, Andrew Niederman, went on to write like 20 multi-book series under the name of E.C. Andrews. And so it would be interesting to, to look and see if there's a shift in the um, sort of female-centric storytelling after he takes over. But she solidly wrote Flowers in the Attic. And so 
and it was published in 1979. And so that is really an interesting time if you're thinking about feminism in our culture and the recentering of women in narrative. Of course, this is this is commercial literature, it was not meant to be literary fiction, but it's super interesting that those themes kind of come through in the way she crafted the characters. Did you like it? Did I like it then or did I like it this time? Now, as a reread, like as you can look at it a little more critically, you know, as an adult, as a regular reader, like did you, do? what do you think of it as a work? I think that it is, well, certainly, if you look at it as an example of gothic horror fiction, it's a pretty incredible story in terms of how it lines up with that. A lot of gothic horror has things like beautiful young women trapped in large mansions under the care of evil men. Interestingly, even though gothic horror kind of came to be in the 18th century, sexuality and incest are really common themes in that genre. As a piece of modern horror, I do think that it is a pretty good book. But then I also at the same time, I'm like, but it's also so problematic. And <laughs> and I feel nervous about kids reading it. I, and I was just talking about this, like that we as, you know, as adults might feel this uncomfortableness with um, our kids being exposed to things. I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it as a piece of what, like you said, that's now shelved in young adult sections. Um, Did I like it as I was reading it? It's still wildly engaging. It's still very like you, you get into the story. I find it actually more disturbing now as a 41 year old woman, as a parent, because I'm so sensitive to things where children are being abused or whatever. So in some ways, it was a tougher read, although I knew what was going to happen ultimately, so that helped. I think it holds up, though, as a really, really crazily interesting novel. So I was completely surprised that it is better than I remembered. At some point in my life, and I'm snobby about books and I'm judgmental about books, and at some point in my life, I had shelved it in my mind as like trash. Mm, mm-hmm. There's so many pop culture references to it. It's kind of been made into like a joke, a cult classic slash joke. <laughs> you know, there's a lot about it that that culturally for me, sometime, somehow I had put it in the category as just like trash, basically. I don't know how else to say it. Like a trashy novel that yeah, because it had these scandalous parts had, became popular, but that there wasn't a lot of merit to it. That's right, right. how I thought of it. I was wrong. Like, there are things about this book that are good. I mean, the story, like just the plot points of the story, it's good. And it has a really good narrative arc. It has a really good character arc. It has surprises. It It, I love a book that leaves some questions open and it leaves some questions open at the end. And it's not... It's a page turner, but they're not constantly filling you with things happening so that you just can't – each page has a brand new, crazy, startling thing, which some books are that way now, and I, I don't care for that kind of writing. Flowers in the Attic is actually – like, they don't – nothing much happens once they're in the attic. They sort of are like – there's some yeah. slow points is what I'm saying, but in a good way. Like, right. it is paced out. 
Yes. There's absolutely character development, like you said, after they're sort of exiled to the attic and the actual intensity of action slows down a little bit. She really does dig in and give these characters some development, I think, especially Kathy, the protagonist. And I can see how as seventh and eighth grade or whatever grade girls we were when we read this, that must have been a big part of the appeal, I feel like, to have someone our age, because isn't Kathy like 14-ish throughout the majority well, of the action? She's 12 when they get stuck up there, and then okay. she's 14, but you know they're in there for like two and a half years. Okay. And so to have someone who would be our age in this awful situation, but who's able to sort of take us on this journey with her and speak so grown up and so, but so relatably about it. I do feel like it is in a really great piece of young adult fiction in the sense that VC Andrews really invested a lot of heart and a lot of, I don't know, development into who Kathy is and who she becomes throughout the book. And I have to think that is a huge reason why for girls our age, this was one that we picked up and we passed around to all of our friends and put it in our friends' hands and are like, you have to read this. Besides the scandalous parts. Now, see, I was mostly drawn to Corinne, the mom, and how she changes. I don't know if I was drawn to yeah. her when I was a kid, because again, yeah. I didn't understand anything. Yeah. But she, you know, how she's like this loving, doting, yes. very enmeshed mom in the beginning, yes. and then how that changes. And does it change because of money? Does it change because she's has her mother's evil genes? Is her mother not as evil? Her, her mother also, the grandmother also turns out to be maybe not as evil as you think she is. So she is all time, she is multilayered, as is Corinne is multilayered, as yeah. is Kathy. But I just think just the turning, you know, that's a slow turn of the character of Corinne. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And that takes craft to do that. That's what I mean if I was like, oh, no, this is actually brilliantly constructed. This is not just a flash in the pan type of story. Now, I will say that I didn't love some of the writing and some of the language. Some of it was obviously just felt a little dated. I mean, it's a 40-year-old book. Sure. There's going to be some dated, you know, sentence construction there. But, like, why? Why did this child keep saying, good golly day? Is, <laughs> is good golly day a saying? Is that really a saying? And why is it on, like, every fifth page? I mean, do you feel like yes. they said good golly or lolly golly or whatever, like, very strange exclamations throughout? That felt very contrived to me. Like, I was like, I don't even think they said that in 79. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So there were a few things like that that like really leapt out. And yeah, it, it feels the date, the writing, the actual writing feels a little bit dated to me. But mm-hmm. story wise, I I was surprised. I thought it was going to be just, a, I thought it was going to be, what's even a good example of like, I thought it was just going to be total trash, like The Bachelor of... <laughs> books <laughs> right like yes. a guilty pleasure like where you're just like this right. is this is a disaster why are we all mesmerized by this and it i don't think i actually don't think literary wise it is that yeah no i don't either and i think that that was part of the appeal as well so much of literature that is created for young adults is so safe to the point of being dribble of not they're just not being much there and this 
novel really dives into some emotional complexity. And I think it's for the same reason, like that Hunger Games was huge. I mean, Hunger Games is without a doubt a well-written series. But the fact that there was like there was some meatiness, not just the heaviness of the plot, but real meat to what was happening there. My fifth grader has read the entire Hunger Games series already. She absolutely devoured it. And I think she would even say that stands out to her as one of her favorite reads, because, again, it's there's so much to it. And I think that a lot of times kids and and young adults don't get that put into their hands, especially compared to what they're reading, like for class or whatever, that's very safe and very sanitized. That in this age group, if you put something in their hands that is wildly engaging, wildly borderline on the naughtiness or the scandalousness, that there's something very exciting about that for a young reader. It's funny that you used Hunger Games as an example because for some bizarre reason, I also kept likening it to Hunger Games. Oh, interesting. I don't know why. There's there's nothing about it that's similar other than it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Hunger Games, the children are killing one another. In Flowers in the Attic, they're awakening to their sexuality with literally no one else around except siblings. Yeah. And... Let's just talk about that for a second. Let's okay. just talk about the sex because this is the biggest point that most people, when they think of flowers in the attic, they think of yep. that the two siblings who are teenagers, Kathy and Chris, have sex with one another. And I want to say to the reader, in case you are any kind of confused, Chris rapes her. Absolutely. That's in my notes to talk about. This is such a huge point. This is not sex. This is not incest. This is rape. Mm -hmm. There is an incestual element in that they're having a burgeoning attraction to one another. Right. As their sexual feelings develop. And again, they're stuck in this attic together with only each other to look at. And I know we don't want to think about it like that. It's almost like you don't want to give them grace, sort of. But as I was reading it, you you kind of do. Yeah. Until the actual scene. And so I'm, I'm reading along and I'm preparing for them to have sexual relations. It leads right. up to that for many, many, many pages. You can see that they're attracted to one another, that their bodies are changing, that they're bonded you know, emotionally in this like struggle. And so I'm preparing myself for a sex scene was unprepared wholly for a rape scene, which it was. There is nothing to quibble about here. This is what it was. He rapes her. He forces her down on the ground onto a mattress and he puts himself inside of her. She is saying no. After it is done, He says, I'm sorry I raped you. Yes. And, and the, this is the most problematic moment in this whole book for me is Kathy's response to that. I actually marked it. Please read it because her response, I have so many things I need to say about this. You have to read it. The, the, the listener needs to hear this. Okay. So Chris says, don't hate me. I didn't mean to rape you. I swear to God. And then he says some more things, but here's what Kathy says. I don't hate you, Chris. You didn't rape me. I could have stopped you if I really wanted to. All I had to do was bring my knee up hard where you told me to. It was my fault too. 
And that's the end of her, what she says to Chris. But then she goes on to, in her thoughts, say, oh, yes, my fault to you. I should have known better than to kiss Mama's handsome young husband, which was leading up to this moment. I shouldn't have worn skimpy little see-through garments around a brother who had all a man's strong physical needs and a brother who was always so frustrated by everything and everyone. I had played upon his needs, testing my femininity, having my own burning yearnings for fulfillment. No. It's so problematic. It's It's such a problem. And if you're our age and you read this when you were 12, 13, 14, and you read it for this part. You read it because it has sex scenes in it. You read it because it has sexuality in it. And if one of the earliest messages you're getting is that she wanted that rape, that she considers it her fault, that when she looks back, she tempted him, then what you are learning is is that rape is your fault, that you are playing a part in someone's violence towards you. Yeah. I was stunned by, this is the part of the book that I keep thinking about since I reread it and obviously not because of um, a, a sexual attraction to it. It's so disturbing to me for everything that you just said that we as young women on the cusp of discovering sexuality as we are getting ready to, in the next few years, enter into relationships that are going to have a very sexual dynamic to them, that we are reading our heroine here saying, you didn't rape me. I could have stopped you if I wanted to. Oh my gosh, it's so damaging. It's so, so damaging. It's so damaging. And And because the whole rest of the book has set up how much Chris loves her, that another message you're receiving is... If he can't help himself, if he forces himself upon you in anger, by the way, when he rapes her, he's angry. This is why there's there's absolutely no room for interpretation here. Right. He right. rapes her in anger. Yeah. And because the whole book has set it up as how much he loves her, then you're, you're taking in a message of if someone does this to me, they really love me. They just mm-hmm. can't help themselves. That's how right. much they love me. Yeah. What? Yeah. To me, that is so much worse to have my daughter read those messages than like a incestuous brother and sister are in love with each other message, which is like where I thought we were going as I'm reading along. Yeah. It's so much worse. I could not believe how much worse it was. Now, I understand from doing some research for this episode that in the in the series, they go on to have a relationship and and marriage and whatever, and they're both in that relationship together, Chris and Kathy. So, okay, fine. As the series goes on, they go on to have a relationship and I guess a marriage. I'm not sure. Chris and Kathy are a couple. And so this is why I think when pop culture to this day makes jokes about flowers in the attic, it sees them as a couple and in love and, you know, incest and brother and sister being in love with one another. And maybe that's true for the series as a whole. In this book, Chris rapes Kathy. Mm-hmm. And I don't ever see reference to that. Like, I literally don't think that people remember it that way. And I read an essay about this where she doesn't remember it that way. She's sort of an adult looking back like us. And she's saying she doesn't remember it that way. And then when she gave upon a reread, she's like, I don't think the reader reads it that way. 
when you're young, you don't read it that way. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. As a young person, you re- you don't, unless mm-hmm. someone has fully talked to you about what consent means. Right. Not- okay. Well, speaking of that idea of consent, I wonder, I've, I've thought about this scene so much, and I've thought about what V.C. Andrews was doing here. Again, keeping in mind that she wrote this in 1979, I wonder if she was going for what is a trope in romance novels, in um, even really strongly in like erotica, which this is not meant to be. But I think that she was laying the foundations for which she was going to develop into a romance series. And it's the idea of dubious consent, which is this idea that it's a situation where a character is unsure of whether or not he or she wants to consent to sex. Or even if it's a a relationship where um, the person isn't able to make what we would now call meaningful consent, like a student-teacher relationship or like a patient and a doctor it's very prevalent. This is this trope, this idea of dubious consent is very prevalent in the romance world. I wonder if that's what she was going for, or like if that was what was informing her choice to write the scene this way. I also just wonder if we in a post Me Too world, if our blinders have been removed to the point where we can clearly see this now, that this was an obvious rape. Whereas you know, back when you and I were reading this when we were kids, again, we didn't understand a lot about sexuality for sure. But the idea of having conversations about what is consent that we have with our children, that kids learn in bigger learning opportunities, whether it's in the classroom or community groups or whatever, it's a weird peek back into the world the way it used to be. And it's startling how it was right there in front of us I would have never, I barely knew what rape was when I was in the seventh grade, but I definitely wouldn't have thought that Chris had raped Kathy when I read this as a seventh grade girl. Well, and she, again, it's so clear. It's not like she keeps it vague because there are themes to be explored in literature and in life, you know, as you tiptoe in the line of sexuality of like, do I want this? Do I not? Do I want this? Do I not? It is not that. The actual scene is not that. Kathy never even has a chance to think, do I want this or not? However, leading up to it, they're, you know, having this this relationship that is starting to sort of turn sexual. Some of the scenes before the rape that would have been happening in the months before the act happens are sexy. Now, it's a brother and sister, so there's that. But especially if you're a young person reading it, like, you know, he takes her breast in his mouth, you know, like things that you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, that is like mind blowing. So there are these things that happen that are sexy. Yeah. So when you get to the scene where he rapes her, I was horrified not only by the event, but almost because I feel like it was written like that sexy. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I know that people have fantasies that might, you know, border on this. And like, I know that it maybe it is seen as sexy if in a certain genre that I don't want to think about. But this is marketed to children. Yes. Shelved on the young adult shelf at your local public library. I just can't even believe it. Like, I feel like, oh, I don't even want to make jokes about this book anymore. Like, all of the jokes 
I even made one on social media yesterday about Jamie and Cersei Lannister in <laughs> Game of Thrones. You know, like there's a lot of incest in you know, in literature and in entertainment over time. And I used to think that this fell into that category. And now I'm like, I, I don't. I don't. I feel like so differently about it. I do too. I was, I was, ve- I like, I just can't say this enough. I keep thinking about that scene and I just keep thinking like, what was the author thinking? I don't know. My English teacher brain is always like trying to break down. Like, Why would a writer write it this way? Was it a product of the understanding of sexuality at the time? I mean, I just, I don't know. I, it's so problematic and so upsetting to me, this. And I guess I, I hadn't even thought about it, but I do agree with what you're saying. It is making me kind of reconsider the whole book. And it's, again, it's problematic because the book is good. I wish there just wasn't that thing. I wish how Kathy handled the aftermath of the rape was so different. If we want to be generous towards V.C. Andrews, you can look at it as this was generational because Corinne Mm. falls in love with a half uncle. There's no tidbits to that there was any violence there, but there's violence in the household. The grandmother lashes the children, lashes Corinne when she's an adult. Yeah. So you can, in some ways, generously look at it as, you know, there was so much dysfunction, so many levels of dysfunction in these people, like genetically, culturally, you know, nurture versus nature. It's hard to separate. All of these things are coming together in like the perfect storm of confusion and hormones and situational ethics. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is a generous look upon it because I did not feel that way when I read it. That's not what I thought was going to happen. Like, I feel like it would be a really, I would feel differently about this book almost to the point of like recommending it or something. I enjoyed it, but for that, like if they had had incestuous sexual relations, like loving incestuous sexual relations, still scandalous, still gross. Let's not do that. Right. But I would look on the I would look on the story as a whole differently. Yes. Yes. To move on from our obviously big feelings about mm-hmm. the rape that everyone else refers to as sex. This book requires so much suspension of disbelief. Oh yes. Because these children could have gotten out at any point. I know. <laughs> yes. I also remember one of the things that I remember from reading it the first time is like how trapped they were. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in this stifling, hot attic and all of these things. And when I read it as a young person, it was just like, oh, how horrifying to be imprisoned in this attic. When I read it as a functioning adult, I'm like, well, they sneak out to go swim in the pond. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Why didn't we run away? What are we doing? I know. (laughs) They sneak out and go look in the rooms of the mansion and steal some money. And again, what are we doing? Like there wasn't a back staircase. There wasn't, when they get out, they get out and lay in the sun on the roof occasionally. Like these kids could get out. 
<laughs> I agree. I had so many questions about some of those plot holes. And I came to the same conclusion. Like, I do think that there's a willingness when you are younger to not ask those questions. But yeah. <laughs> like, even now, at the beginning of the story, the the father dies. And so then the mom is forced to return to her childhood home. This is where the attic is in the childhood home. And all along, even though at the big. I know where this book is going. At the beginning of the ride, I'm like, she didn't have any other option. I <laughs> mean, no. <laughs> she couldn't have called a friend or like gotten a job. Like I was like, there, this can't be her only option. You know? know, and then they get there and then, you know, everything that happens happens. And you're like, really? This, it just, there's so many plot holes. Like, she could have left. The kids could have left. It just feels like, what are we all doing, everyone? Like, we're all participating in this I know. thing that I know. doesn't make any sense. No, the whole construct for the book is pretty flimsy. It really is. No, it's ridiculous. And that the servant, the whole thing is that they're hiding from the, not only are they hiding from their ill grandfather, they're also hiding from the servants who would right, right. surely yes. tell yes. that they were up there. And then there is a brief scene at the very end where... They overhear, or Chris overhears the servants talking, and they're sort of gossiping, and they give no sign of knowing that there's been big old children, like 15 and 14-year-old children up in the attic for three years. <laughs> and I'm like, this is... And he even says that the servants seem to know everything. They're like gossiping about all these comings yes. and goings and all these things, and I'm like, which... You know, traditionally, that's the—that's what all of Downton Abbey is about, right? Like, right. servants yes. know all. And so I'm yes. like, they know everything and they've never figured out that there are people living in the attic. Listen, I have four children. Four children left to themselves in any part of a house will not be quiet as mice. I promise you that. I don't care how much they are in fear of their very lives. That's not going to happen ever. I don't care how big your mansion is someone will hear the children up the stairs. <laughs> I mean, the servants even know that the grandmother brings food up to the attic every day, right. quote yes. unquote, for the mice. You're telling me that grown human housekeepers don't think, that seems strange. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Why did the mice need a picnic basket? <laughs> every single day. Yeah, it's real shaky ground this story's built on. <laughs> okay, well, I was thinking, though, to kind of circling back to some of the sexuality that's explored here, aside from the rape scene, um, just setting that aside for a moment, I really do think another huge appeal of this book, because, so you posted about this book on social media, Scores of women came out of the woodwork to say, oh, my gosh, yes, I read it. I haven't, you know, I haven't read it in years, but I never forgot it. Just so many of us read this book. I do think that a big part of it is it is a book filled with growing sexual tension that kind of starts in the beginning, even when we begin to read and understand this very overt sexual dynamic in the family Corinne and her husband, who's Christopher, who Chris is named after, are very affectionate, 
there's a big deal about how Corinne makes herself beautiful when mm. he's coming home from trips. And there's just a very palpable sexuality in that family. And so you have that. There's also a lot more than I remembered about how Chris, the son, has maybe some complicated feelings about Corinne, his mother, this tension of having a beautiful, attractive, very obviously sexual mother. And then later, as the story develops, how Kathy begins to want to step into that role now that Corinne is missing from his life and like press him to her breasts the way Corinne used to. And I really think that there's like this strong Oedipus complex, Electra complex, which I know those are really controversial theories in psychology, but this idea that part of discovering sexuality is having to recalibrate how we view sexual dynamics in our families. And so, and that's such a universal thing. So I think it's very interesting that so many of us that are now adult women read this in middle school, would have maybe even said it was our favorite book in middle school because it allowed us to explore in a safe, in the safe context of reading what it's like to have really complicated and confusing understandings of what sexuality is. And this was a long time. I feel like before parents to like they are today, were encouraged to have, you know, open and frequent conversations with their kids about sex. It was so taboo. My mom sat me down one time in fifth grade, had a talk and we never spoke of it again, which is really not the prevailing trend now. But I think a lot of us identified with Kathy who kind of signified that sort of universal isolation that early adolescences when these things are coming to the surface, these feelings, these thoughts, and then like, what do you do with all of that? That's the beauty and gift of reading is that you can step into another person's world and not feel alone and explore it, even though this is very outside of normative sexuality, the whole dynamic is. But I real the more I've thought about this book, and I, I just have been so plagued with like, why was this such a hit with girls our age? Besides the obvious fact that it's a very engaging book. And I do think that there's something in that cusp of adolescence that this was like the the thing to read at the time. Well, also you relate to, in our community growing up, we were in a conservative area of the country in Oklahoma. And not that you relate to the grandmother's abuse but there is some relation to the grandmother's absolute shutdown of any sexuality yes. before yeah. Kathy has even thought of sexuality. So she shows up. She's not started puberty or anything yet when, when they first land at the house. And the grandmother is like, you are not allowed to use the bathroom at the same time. You are not allowed to see one another's bodies. Yes. And she's thinking... Well, that's weird because they're siblings and they see one another's bodies because that's very common among siblings, you know, to right. have to change or, you know, whatever. And the grandmother is so strict and specific about not even glancing at one another. Yes. To not even use the bathroom. So like use the toilet in front of one another or whatever. Like she's so strict about it before Kathy's even... She's, yeah. The grandmother is introducing the idea that this is wrong before they, you know, when they are still innocent. Yes. And in some ways, in our culture at least, that's a, relatable. Mm -hmm. I was definitely, not from my parents, but from culture and church and places, I was definitely told how wrong things were before I 
they'd even entered my mind. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so that's, a, to me, that was, would have been another appeal of like, they're telling you how wrong this is, but we're sort of experiencing before it, anything happens with Chris, you're sort of through Kathy, it's experiencing just having the feelings and she's questioning why is this wrong? You know, she's having all the normal developmental mm. milestones and thoughts and feelings about it under the shadow of someone saying, this is wrong, this is bad, hide your body. Yes. Yes. And so I, you know, I mean, it's obviously like an extreme ridiculous example, but the feelings that Kathy had, I do think we relate to, to be like, because no one ever tells you why it's wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. We didn't even touch on really the shame component with the grandmother, but that is a huge part of it. And I hadn't thought about how I think for a lot of us, especially those of us who did grow up in some kind of conservative environment, or even just in a, even just in a family culture where body stuff was really shameful, not just like not talked about, but overtly shamed. Yeah, that that I'm sure that that was a huge part of the appeal of, again, stepping into Kathy's shoes and experiencing that too. Well, let's talk about the grandparents for a second. Okay. Does the grandmother redeem herself at the end? Is the grandfather as mean as everyone says he is? One little tiny, tiny moment the, the only moment we get with the grandfather that sticks out to me is at the party. They have a big fancy Christmas party with all their friends and everything. And the two older children, Chris and Kathy, are able to hide in this little nook and look down and watch the party. And it's really the only time that you see the grandfather. He's wheeled out. He, you know, he's in a wheelchair. He is wheeled out. And he's, he's also downstairs watching the party. And one little moment is he looks up to where they're hiding and he kind of smiles. And mm-hmm. Kathy is like, does he know we're up here? And right. you never know. The, it's left ambiguous. And then yeah. at the end of the story, where you also realize slowly, just in the last few pages, that the powdered donuts the grandmother has been bringing up to them have been laced with arsenic all this time. Mm-hmm. And someone because maybe not the grandmother, it might have been Corinne, the mom, we're finding out, is slowly poisoning them. Yes. And they leave it open, I feel like, at the end that she makes an argument for it not being the grandmother poisoning them because the grandmother always told them not to eat the donuts, not to eat the sweets, not to eat the sweets. Right. And also when they make their escape at the end, she maybe they see her standing in the window, basically letting them go, watching them go, letting them go. And so I can't figure out if that's a redemption. Now, obviously, she was abusive. I'm not – it's not like a full redemption. She was physically and verbally and emotionally very, very abusive. But is there a little bit of redemption for her at the end that she's not as bad as you think she is or that the grandfather isn't as bad? Are they both worse than we couldn't have imagined? I don't know. What do you think? Okay, so I thought it was interesting when you said at the top of the episode that Corinne was one of the most interesting characters for you because I feel like Corinne ultimately ends up being the villain of the novel. I think she's an unreliable narrator throughout, and you do get this little twist at the end. I always read it, and I remember reading it as a kid, that it was Corinne who was poisoning the children. And so all we know from especially about the grandfather, really comes from 
Corinne's telling of what's happening. I'm, I feel like I, I'm undecided. I feel, I think that actually probably the grandfather, maybe he was, and I'm, t- this is a total adult reading of the grandfather. Maybe he was shocked and horrified when his daughter ran off and got married to his half brother, but that maybe over time he would have softened and would have been welcoming. I think that that one small moment, and again, to speak to VC Andrews, craft of writing, she doesn't even explicitly say it, but she raises the question for the reader, that one smile, could it be that the grandfather wasn't a monster? I think that it's very possible that he could have had a change of heart over time. I'm I'm undecided about on the grandmother, probably because she is just so, so, so horrifically abusive. It's hard for me to say, but then in the end, she did let them go. <laughs> She has a few moments. She lets them go. She brings Kathy a present, right? Out of the, oh, she brings oh, them flowers right. at one yes, point when they say they're trying to make the attic cleaner that's and right. nicer. She yeah. has. I'm not redeeming the grandmother. Don't misunderstand. But she has some moments where you mm-hmm. think maybe this is a little bit of an act. Like her mean grandmotherness is right. Is not one note. Yes. Yeah. I think there's an argument to be made that the grandfather knew those kids were up there. I know it's a tiny moment at the party when he looks up and smiles, but also the servants say that after he passed in his will, he says, if it ever comes to be known that Corinne had children with the half uncle, that she doesn't get the money anymore. Now, why would he say that? She has, If he didn't know those children were up there or that they were out there somewhere, Right. She's been living at this house for three years. Why yeah. does he think that children are going to come out of the woodwork or out of the attic? That's the case, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Very good. Very good. Um, but yeah, that's a very good point. But that also means he's punishing her still. I know. I can't. I cannot untangle. I cannot. Infi- I cannot figure out the dynamic between Crin and her parents. To this day, I don't understand what's going on there. I do maintain my opinion that she's ultimately the villain here. But also, as you said, she does, I mean, her, the grandmother does beat her and is abusive to her too, that we see. There's so much that we don't see too of what's going on with Corinne and her parents as the time passes by. I don't know. It's very complicated. It's totally complicated. We haven't mentioned, and it bears mentioning, that the little twin boy dies. Yes. Yeah. Due to complications of the arsenic or he gets sick on top of having been poisoned or whatever happens. Yeah. The little boy dies. Of course, that's sad on its face. However, it's almost like V.C. Andrews did not kill her darlings because he is the least developed yes least anything character yes you do not get attached to him almost in any way no he's a complete cardboard character in this whole novel and so there's there's it really loses a lot of emotional impact that he's the one who dies because yes you're really uninvested in him for the most part, other than it's sad that he's a little boy that was born into this and 
this is what happened in his life. But in terms of the emotional payoff, if you're going to have one of the children die after all of this time, it totally a wrong choice if you were looking for an emotional payoff at the end. It's almost like she knew that yeah. she was going to do a whole series and but she also wanted this plot point like she wanted one of them to die. <laughs> so yes. Just, yeah, make it Corey. He's yeah. out of here. He's out of here. <laughs> There's so much happening here. I'm sure that people are going to be listening and like, "Oh, but wait, don't forget." <laughs> Yeah, not the trash I expected it to be, but also not the love story I expected either. Yes, this was horrifying to me on the cover of the new one that you and I both have, the new cover. It's not the new book, the new cover to Flowers in the Attic. Above V.C. Andrews' name, it says that this is the classic novel of forbidden love. And I'm like, it most certainly is not. It most certainly is not. Thank you for suggesting that we do this. It was quite a different turn than revisiting Judy Bloom. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10thingstotellyou. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.